Chapter Two of Captain Antifer by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter Two. The reader will hardly be astonished at Mehemet Ali entering on the scene at the beginning of this chapter. Whatever may have been the importance of the illustrious Pasha in the history of the Levant, he must inevitably have appeared in the story on account of the unpleasant experiences the owner of the brigantine had had with the founder of modern Egypt. At this epoch, Mehemet Ali had not begun, with the army of his son Ibrahim, the conquest of Palestine and Syria, which belonged to Sultan Mahmud, the sovereign of Turkey in Europe and Turkey in Asia. On the contrary, the Sultan and the Pasha were good friends, the Pasha having helped the Sultan successfully to reduce the Moria and overcome the attempt at independence of the little kingdom of Greece. For some years, Mehemet Ali and Abraham remained quietly in their Pakalik, but undoubtedly this state of vassalage, which made them mere subjects of the Porte, lay heavy on their ambition, and they were only waiting an opportunity for breaking the bonds which had existed for centuries. There then lived in Egypt a personage whose fortune, accumulated for many generations, made him one of the most important men in the country. He lived at Cairo. His name was Kamalik Pasha, and he it was whom the captain of the brigantine addressed as Excellency. He was an educated man, well versed in the mathematical sciences, and in their practical and even fanciful application. But above all things, he was steeped deep in Orientalism, and an Ottoman at heart, though an Egyptian by birth. Having persuaded himself that the resistance to the attempts of Western Europe to reduce the people of the Levant to subjection would be more stubborn under Sultan Mahmud than under Mehemet Ali, he had thrown himself heart and soul into the contest. Born in 1780 of a family of soldiers, he was scarcely twenty years of age when he had joined the army of the Jezer, where he soon attained by his courage the title and rank of Pasha. In 1799 he had many times risked his liberty, his fortune, and his life in fighting against the French under Bonaparte. At the Battle of El Arish he was made prisoner with the Turks, and would have been set at liberty if he had signed an undertaking not to bear arms again against the French. But resolved to struggle to the end, and reckoning on an unlikely change of fortune, obstinate in his deeds as he was in his ideas, he refused to give his parole. He succeeded in escaping, and became more energetic than ever in the various encounters which distinguished the conflict of the two races. At the surrender of Jaffa on the 6th of March, he was among those given up under the capitulation on condition that their lives were saved. When these prisoners, to the number of 4,000, for the most part Albanians or Arnots, were brought before Bonaparte, the conqueror was much disturbed at the capture, fearing that these redoubtable soldiers would go to reinforce the Pasha's garrison at Acre. And even in those days, showing that he was one of those conquerors who stick at nothing, he gave orders that the prisoners should be shot. This time there was no offer as to the prisoners of El Arish, to set them at liberty on condition of their not serving again. No, they were condemned to die. They fell on the beach, and those whom the bullets had not struck, believing that mercy had been shown them, were shot down as they ran along the shore. It was not in this place, nor in this way, that Kamalik Pasha was to perish. He met with some men, Frenchmen be it said to their honor, who were disgusted at this frightful massacre, necessitated, perhaps, by the exigencies of war. These brave fellows managed to save several of the prisoners. One of them, a merchant seaman, was prowling a night round the reefs of which several of the victims were lying, when he found Kamalik seriously wounded. He carried him away to a place of safety, took care of him, and restored him to health. 
Would Kamalik ever forget such a service? No. How he rewarded it is the object of this curious story to tell. Briefly, then, Kamalik Pasha was on his feet again in three months. Bonaparte's campaign had ended in the failure before Edgar. Under the command of Abdullah, Pasha of Damascus, the Turkish army had crossed the Jordan on the 4th of April, and the British fleet under Sidney Smith was cruising off the coast of Syria. Bonaparte had hurried up Kleber's division with Junot, and had himself taken the command, and routed the Turks at the Battle of Mount Tabor. But he was too late when he returned to threaten Acre. A reinforcement had arrived. The plague appeared, and on the 20th of May he decided to raise the siege. Kemalik thought he might venture to return to Syria. To return to Egypt, which was much disturbed at the time, would have been the height of imprudence. It was better to wait, and Kemalik waited for five years. Thanks to his wealth, he was able to live in easy circumstances in the provinces beyond the reach of Egyptian covetousness. These years were marked by the entry on the scene of a mere son of the Aga, whose bravery had been remarkable at the Battle of Abukar in 1799. Mehemet Ali already enjoyed such influence that he was able to persuade the Marmelukes to revolt against the governor Koshru Pasha, to excite them against the chief, to depose Korshin, Korshru's successor, and finally in 1806 to proclaim himself viceroy with the consent of the sublime Porte. Two years before, the Jezer, the protector of Kamalik Pasha, had died. Finding himself alone, he thought there would be no danger in his returning to Cairo. He was then twenty-seven, and new inheritances had made him one of the richest men in Egypt. Having no wish to marry, being of a very uncommunicative nature, preferring a retired life, he had retained a strong liking for the profession of arms, and until an opportunity came for him to exercise his skill, he would find an outlet for the activities so natural to his age in long and distant voyages. But if Kamalik Pasha was not to have any direct heir for his enormous fortune, were there not collaterals ready to receive it? A certain Morad, born in 1786, six years younger than he was, was his cousin. Differing in their political opinions, they never saw each other, although they both lived at Cairo. Kamalik was devoted to the Turkish interest, and as we have seen, had proved his devotion to the cause. Morad opposed the Ottoman influence by his words and actions, and became the most ardent adviser of Mohammed Ali in his enterprises against Sultan Mahmud. This Murad, the only relative of Kemalik Pasha, as poor as the other was rich, could not depend on his cousin's fortune unless a reconciliation took place. This was not likely. On the contrary, animosity, violent hate even, had made the abyss deeper between the only two members of this family. Eighteen years elapsed, from 1806 to 1824, during which the reign of Mehemet Ali was untroubled by foreign war. He had, however, to struggle against the increasing influence and formidable agitation of the Mamelukes, his accomplices, to whom he owed his throne. A general massacre throughout Egypt in 1811 delivered him from this troublesome militia. Thenceforth, long years of tranquility were assured to the subjects of the viceroy, whose relations with the Divan continued excellent, in appearance at least, for the Sultan distrusted his vassal, and not without reason. Kimalik was often the mark of Murad's ill will. Murad, Taking advantage of the testimonies of sympathy he received from the viceroy, was continually inciting his master against the rich Egyptian. He reminded him that he was a partisan of Mahmud, a friend of the Turks, and that he had shed his blood for them. According to his account, he was a dangerous personage, a man to be watched, perhaps a spy. 
This enormous fortune in one man's hand was a danger. In short, he said all he could to awaken the greed of the potentate without principle and without scruple. Kemalik would have taken no notice of this. At Cairo he lived alone, and would have been difficult to devise a plot to catch him. When he left Egypt, it was on a long voyage. Then, on a ship that belonged to him, commanded by Captain Zhou, five years his junior and entirely devoted to him, he cruised on the seas of Asia, Africa, and Europe, his life without an object, and marked by a haughty indifference to humanity. We may even ask if he had forgotten the sailor to whom he owed his escape from the fuselage of Bonaparte. Certainly not. Such services he did not forget. But had these services received their reward? That was not likely. Would it enter the thoughts of Kamalik Pasha to recognize them later on, waiting an opportunity of doing so until one of his maritime expeditions took him into French waters? Who could tell? In process of time, the rich Egyptian could not hide from himself that he was narrowly watched during his stay in Cairo. Several journeys he wished to undertake were forbidden by order of the viceroy. Owing to the incessant suggestions of his cousin, his liberty was in danger. In 1823, Murad, at the age of 37, married, in a way that did not promise to improve his position in the world. He had espoused a young fella, almost a slave. There is no room for astonishment, then, that he continued the torturous proceedings by which he hoped to ruin Kamalik, by means of influence he possessed with Muhammad Ali and his son, Ibrahim. Egypt, however, was about to begin a period of military activity in which its arms were to have brilliant success. In 1824, Greece was against Mahmud, who called on his vassal to aid him in putting down the rebellion. Ibrahim, at the head of a hundred and twenty sail, started for the Moria and landed there. The opportunity had come for Kamalik to have an object in life, to venture in the perilous enterprises which for twenty years he had abandoned, and with all the more ardor as it was to maintain the rights of the port menaced by the rising of the Peloponnesus. He would have joined Ibrahim's army. He was refused. He would have served as an officer in the Sultan's troops. He was again refused. Was this not in consequence of the ill-omened influence of those whose interest it was not to lose sight of their millionaire relative? The struggle of the Greeks for independence was to end in the victory of that heroic nation. After three years, during which they were inhumanly treated by Ibrahim's troops, the combined action of the Allied fleets destroyed the Ottoman navy at the Battle of Navarino in 1827, and obliged the viceroy to recall his vessels and army to Egypt. Ibrahim then returned to Cairo, followed by Morad, who had been through the Peloponnesian campaign. From that day, Kamalik's position grew worse. Mahmoud's hatred became all the more violent in 1829, owing to his having a son born of his marriage with a young fella. His family was increasing, and not his fortune. Evidently, his cousin's fortune must find its way into his hands. The viceroy would not refuse to sanction this spoliation. Such readiness to oblige is not unknown in Egypt, nor in other less oriental civilized countries. Saouk, it may be as well to remember, was the name of Murad's child. Under these circumstances, Kamalik saw that there was only one thing to do. To get his fortune together, the greater part of it being in diamonds and precious stones, and depart with it out of Egypt. This he did with as much prudence as ability, thanks to the assistance of some foreigners at Alexandria, in whom the Egyptian did not hesitate to trust. His confidence was well placed, and the operation was accomplished in the utmost secrecy. Who were these foreigners? To what nation did they belong? Kamalik Pasha alone knew. Three casks of double staves hooped with iron, similar to those which Spanish wines are put, 
sufficed to contain all his wealth. They were secretly placed on board a Neapolitan Speronaire, and their owner, accompanied by Captain Zoe, went with them as a passenger, not without escaping many dangers, for he had been followed from Cairo to Alexandria, and kept under observation all the time he was in that town. Five days afterwards, the Speronaire landed him at Latakia, and thence he gained Aleppo, which he had chosen for his new residence. Now he was in Syria. What did he to fear from Murad under the protection of this old general, Abdullah, now Pasha of Acre? Would Mehemet Ali, however daring he might be, venture to seize him in a province over which the sublime Porte extended its all-powerful jurisdiction? And yet, this was possible. In fact, this very year, 1830, Mehemet Ali broke off his relations with the Sultan. To break the bonds of vassalage which attached him to Mahmud, to add Syria to his Egyptian possessions, perhaps to become sovereign of the Ottoman Empire, were ideas not too high for the viceroy's ambition. The pretext was not difficult to find. Fellas, ill-treated by the agents of Mohammed Ali, had sought refuge in Syria under Abdullah's protection. The viceroy demanded the extradition of these peasants. The Pasha of Acre refused. Mohammed Ali requested the Sultan's permission to reduce Abdullah by force of arms. Mahmud replied at first that the fellows being Turkish subjects, he had no intention of handing them over to the viceroy of Egypt. But a little time after, desirous of securing the aid of Mohammed Ali, or at least his neutrality, at the outbreak of the revolt of the Pasha of Scutari, he gave the required permission. Several events, among others the appearance of the cholera in the ports of Levant, delayed the departure of Ibrahim at the head of 32,000 men and 22 ships of war. Kamalik had time to think of the danger to him of a landing of Egyptians in Syria. He was then fifty-one, and fifty-one years of a life, troubled as his has been, brings a man almost to the threshold of old age. Wearied, discouraged, his illusions dispelled, longing only for the rest he had hoped to find in this quiet town of Aleppo, here had events again turned against him. Was it prudent for him to remain in Aleppo while Ibrahim was preparing to invade Syria? Admittedly, his business was only with the Pasha of Acre, but after he had turned out Abdullah, would the viceroy halt his victorious army? Would his ambition be satisfied with the mere chastisement of the guilty? Would he not take advantage of the opportunity to attempt the conquest of this Syria, which had been the constant object of his desires? And after Acre, would not Damascus and Sidon and Aleppo be threatened by the soldiers of Abraham? It was at least to be feared so. Kamalik Pasha took a final resolution this time. They did not want him, but the fortune coveted by Murad, and of this his relative would deprive him at the cost of handing over the greater part to the viceroy. Well, he would make away with his fortune, and hide it in some secret place where no one would discover it. Then he would see how matters turned out. Later on, if Kamalik decided to leave these oriental countries, to which he was so much attached, or if Syria became safe enough for him to live there in security, he could bring back his treasure from its hiding place. Captain Zoe approved Kamalik's plans, and offered to carry them out in such a way that the secret would never be discovered. A brigantine was bought. A crew was formed of sailors having no bond between them, not even the bond of nationality. The casts were put on board without anyone suspecting what they contained. On the 13th April, the vessel on which Kamalik embarked as a passenger at the port of Latakia was put to sea. His object, as we know, was to discover an island the position of which should only be known to himself and the captain. It was therefore necessary for the crew to be so mystified that they could not guess the direction followed by the brigantine. 
For fifteen months, Captain Zoe acted with this object in view, and changed his course in every possible way. Did he come out of the Mediterranean? And if he did, did he go back into it? Did he not cross the other seas of the old continent? Was he even in Europe when he sighted this unknown island? Certain it is that the brigantine had been in very different climates, one after the other, in very different zones, and the best sailor on board cannot say where they actually were. Provisioned for several years, they had never touched land but when they wanted water, and the watering places were only known to Captain Zoe. The voyage was long. Kim Lake had grown so hopeless of discovering his island that he was about to throw his diamonds into the sea, when the unexpected at last appeared. Such were the events related to the history of Egypt and Syria, which it was necessary to mention. They will not trouble us again. Our story will have a more romantic voyage than this grave beginning might lead the reader to expect, but it had to rest on a solid basis, and this the author has given it, or at least he has attempted to do so. End of chapter 2